Welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from One Samuel and was given by Brian Learn. Hi everyone! It's so good to see you again. And just before we start, I really want to add my encouragement as well. If you've been enjoying public meetings, I really think you're going to love AnCon. I can still remember my first AnCon as a student. And I just could not get enough of the teaching and the fantastic teaching that was there. And I remember all these bits of theology just clicking in my head as I sat under the Bible that week. And so, if you uh, let me encourage you, especially if you're not yet a Christian, if you've got um, doubts, <clears throat> it's actually a really great place to keep experiencing and learning about Jesus. And there's going to be special optional sessions. For people like you, if you're investigating Jesus, you've got questions about the Bible and so on. You can ask all your questions at those sessions in the afternoons at AnCon as well. So um, definitely take advantage of all of the financial discounts that are available to you, and we really would, really would love to see you there. Well, I'm catching the train, and I'm staring out the window as the suburbs just whiz by. I see glimpses of things that I recognise. There's、um, church spires. Apartment buildings, streets, and parks that I know. And when we stop at a station, I can see a whole lot more. I can see people coming in and out of the train. I can see people coming and buying their tickets, and so on. And I sometimes the train stops at a point where there's no station. There, I, I, we don't normally stop here. I'm looking out, and I get to see a part of the tracks that I never get to see. I get to see a part of. The suburbs that I never get to see. There's nothing to orient me there. It just kind of seems a bit random. There's no explanation for why we've stopped there. Now I wonder if this train trip is a bit of a parable for what it's like sometimes to read the storyline of the Bible. We know that some of the major stops. You probably know about the creation of the world, Noah's Ark. You know the, the Christmas and Easter stories. These passages they get covered all the time. Sometimes. I'm just reading a bunch of names in a genealogy, like taking the express train from one story to the next story.、Uh, and sometimes we just stop somewhere pretty random, and we just don't know why we're there, what's going on. We're not quite sure what to make of it all. Maybe one Samuel twenty-seven seems a bit like that. But trains don't just stop randomly for no reason. Even when we don't know exactly why the train has stopped, there's always a Some good reason. It might be so that the trains don't crash into each other. It might be so that the train arrives at the right place in the right time. But、um, the, the random stories in the Bible—they might seem random to us, but they're not actually random. The biblical writers have a reason to show us the particular things that they are showing us, and so we do need to pay attention to them, even if we're a bit confused about what's going on. But there's another way that this. Analogy applies because you know most of us live our lives in a place that is kind of random at a random、uh, place and time. We don't live our lives in the major train station of the analogy. There's absolute clarity about what it's here for and where it's going and what God is doing in our lives. We just live in some back street spot that people don't care about and they don't notice. We're just scratching our heads and we're asking, "What is God doing here? 
Where is God? And what do I do when it feels like I don't know the answers to those questions? God seems hidden. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. Well, we're going to get into 1 Samuel. And I've got three headings for us to process the question of where is God when I can't see him? The first point is that God doesn't need us. God is fully capable of achieving his purposes when we are totally unaware and insensitive to him. Now, in 1 Samuel, a great place to see this is in the early chapters, even before Saul comes onto the scene. In chapter 4, we're told this story about what happens to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a a box that was covered in gold. It had these uh, golden angelic creatures that were sculpted on the top of it. It was carried on these long wooden poles. It would normally uh, have its place in the very center of the tabernacle. Tabernacle is the portable structure that was the place of worship for the Israelites before they had a temple. It would be in the most holy place, the kind of symbolic throne room of the tabernacle. It represented the presence of God with his people. Now, sometimes it wouldn't be in the tabernacle. It would be brought out into battle, and that would sort of symbolize God's presence with with the armies. But in this particular situation, what happens is that the ark of God is brought into battle, but it's captured. The Israelites are defeated. The Philistines capture the ark of God And you'd think that was a sign that God had been defeated, that the God of the Israelites was not as powerful as the God of the Philistines. And the Philistines, therefore, uh, had been the the dominant uh, people because their God was the greater God. But if you read the story, that is not at all what you're meant to take away from it. What happens from from the ark's point of view is that it's brought into the temple of the Philistine God, Dagon, Uh, It's it's a symbol that Yahweh, the God of Israel, serves the greater God, Dagon. But when the Philistines come back in the morning, the statue of Dagon has fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant. So the Israelites come back and they put Dagon back in his place. Here you go, big guy. You know, you're the big God. This is the little God. He serves you. Okay, and then the next morning they come back and Dagon's fallen down and his head's broken off, his hands are broken off. There's no doubt as to which is the greater God. Well, what did the Israelites think? They have no idea about all this is going on. They think they had been utterly defeated. They thought the glory of God had departed from Israel. What did the Philistines think? Well, they thought they had defeated Israel. They thought they had captured Israel's God. But where was God? He was doing perfectly well on his own. Thank you very much. Without human intervention, Without human help, he was in Philistine territory, taking down the Philistine god, Dagon. And the Philistines got scared. They started sending the ark like a hot potato around, around to different cities. But in every case, every place that the ark stopped, there was disease and trouble on the people. You can read it for yourself. But the story in chapter 6 is that the, the Philistines decide they have to get rid of the ark, and they send it back to Israel. And it really happens by a true miracle. And so what do we get out of all of this? Basically, that God doesn't need our help. We can fail him. We might lose the battle. We might think that God's people have been utterly defeated. None of this changes the fact that God is in control from beginning to end. And you know, this means 
that we need to be open to God doing things that are utterly and completely unexpected in our world. Because we might be looking at the world and seeing the rise of secularism and hostility toward Christianity and the fall of church leaders. And we might think, where is God? It looks like he's not there. But maybe in actuality, God is just working in hidden places that we haven't thought to look. Maybe God is doing his work apart from the leaders and the celebrities and the influences of the church. Maybe God is about to expose that our view of him is too focused on ourselves and what we do for him and not enough on his power to work even when we fail. Now, some of us were at Next Steps conference on Saturday. If you don't know about it, Next Steps is a conference of the EU that challenges us to think about the gospel needs around the world, especially in those places that are less reached or less resourced with the gospel. Now, one of the things that Simon, the speaker at that conference, pointed out was that if all you know about Christianity is what's happening in the traditionally Christian countries of Europe and North America and Australia, then yes, it does look like faith is diminishing, that our societies are becoming more secular. But that is not what Christianity looks like around the world today. To restrict our view to these Anglo and Eurocentric countries is to neglect the huge growth of Christianity in Asia, in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and in, uh, and in India. The church of today is a lot more rich and diverse than we might think. And we just might be blind to the reality of how God is at work in the world. So let me encourage you to foster an open-mindedness about what God is doing in the world. Just because we are not at the center of God's most visible work does not mean that he's not working. Well, the second heading is that God's word never fails. People may fail, we might be disobedient, but the word of God does not fail. This theme is woven throughout the whole book. Now, at the beginning of the book, in chapter 2, the man of God comes to Eli the priest and he says, Eli, because you failed to honor God, your, your priestly house will be cut off. Your sons would both die on the same day. That will be the sign and God will raise up another priest in your place. And what happens? The word of God comes true. The very next thing that we read, God's raising up Samuel to be a priest in Eli's place. And then uh, Eli's sons both die on the same day. That's the sign. And Eli dies as well. Later on, Samuel hands over leadership and authority of the nation to Saul. And yet, even though Saul is the king, he's a king under authority. He still has to listen to the word of God. Just as Samuel received the word anoint Saul as king in the first place, Samuel still has the ability to rebuke Saul through the word of God. First, it happens in chapter 13, then in chapter 15, when, it ha when uh, Saul fails to wait and trust in the Lord's timing, and then when Saul disobeys God's commands in chapter 15. Even in chapter 28, toward the end of the book, there's this really weird story about how even after Samuel had died, um, Saul is so desperate for God's guidance and he can't get it any other way 
that he consults a medium, that's someone who like deals in occult practices that so, you know, they claim to be able to speak to the dead. He consults this medium to bring Samuel back from the dead to talk to him and give him uh, God's guidance. And even then, the amazing thing is that you know, she does it and she sees Samuel and Samuel comes and the dead Samuel is still pronouncing judgment on Saul. And he makes a prediction, even from the grave, that, uh, that the people of Israel will be defeated and that Saul's house is going to fall at that point. And that's what we read at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, that that comes true. The word of God does not fail. You see, there's the king, and then there's the king of kings. There's the highest human authority, but the highest human authority is still under the authority of the word of God. Now, there's a couple of parallels to this in our uh, modern Western liberal democratic tradition. One of them is the rule of law, which says that even the people who make the laws, the government, the king, whoever, they themselves have to submit to those very same laws. Or another one is this idea that's usually called the separation of church and state. And um, that is really a way of saying, we normally think about that as saying, well, the government should be secular and you know, that, that church doesn't, shouldn't speak into the, the, the affairs of the government. But actually, the, this principle is about saying, governments have no place telling people what to believe. Or another way of saying it would be that the government is not the authority on how to interpret the Bible. That is, it's a way of saying God's word has a power that is not trumped by civil authority. Well, the point here is that we see Saul and we see people, we do see people doing things that are contrary to God's will, that disobey his commands. We might say, in that context, God's not in control. Where is God? What is he doing? But the fact that people don't do what God says doesn't actually diminish God's sovereign control in, over the whole situation. Part of the point of the whole story of Samuel is to show us that God's word ultimately doesn't fail. He achieves his purposes even when people are disobedient to him, even when we try our hardest to escape his uh, his will. The train ultimately reaches its destination even if it looks, looks sometimes like it's stopped. Now, if this is true, if God's word never fails, what should we do? Three things that we can do in response. The first thing is to inquire of the Lord. Now, the, whenever he had the chance, David would always get his next steps by inquiring of the Lord. Uh, he would seek an answer from God. So when he fled from Saul, chapter 19, he goes straight to Samuel's hometown, Ramah. In chapter 21, he's trying to seek help from the priests. Uh, in chapter 23, he hears that the Philistines are attacking a particular town. He seeks the guidance of God as to whether he should go and save them and so on. Now, let me ask you, do you inquire of the Lord when you're trying to make decisions? Do you ask for God's help? when you have a decision to make. But now we have to be a bit careful because for David to inquire of the Lord, normally that meant going to a priest and they had a particular way that they would, that would happen because one of the, um, the things that was set up in the priesthood of the Old Testament was 
the Urim and the Thummim, these sacred stones that were part of the, the sacred ephod dress piece that one of the priests would wear. And the, it's not, it may, may be a bit ambiguous exactly how these stones worked, but they were a way for God to give very clear guidance when people needed to make important decisions about what action to take. They could say, you know, go and attack this town or refrain from that or and so on. But it was also perfectly possible that God wouldn't give an answer through those stones. And that's what Saul experienced at the end of his life. Now, when we inquire of the Lord, we don't have access to the Urim and the Thummim. You know, God will not usually give us the kind of clarity that perhaps David did have at different points in his decision-making. Now, that partly is because God does actually give us genuine freedom in our actions. So, for example, uh, it, it's not as though God has prepared a path for you and uh, let's, I'll put myself in this situation, right? So maybe God's prepared a path for me, and, but I haven't been able to discern it. Because, so I, even though God intended for me to go into visual arts, I went into biomedical engineering, and because of the, I've took, taken the wrong path, now I'm under a curse and trouble is going to come on me because I haven't discerned God's will. It's not like that. God's commands are not so ambiguous. But it could be that you're in that situation where you're doing biomedical engineering, and you're wondering, maybe I should switch to visual arts because I'm finding biomedical engineering hard and maybe I'm finding it harder than some of my peers are finding it. And I have this desire to use my creative talents to bless other people and to bless God. So what should you do? Well, inquire of the Lord. Pray to God and ask him for help. Ask for wisdom. Ask that he would reveal to you all the different factors that ought to go into that decision. Ask him to set us to help you set aside your, any selfish motivation that's in, the, in that as well. And then you do your research, you work out your options, you see if there's a way forward. Now, it might be that God answers your prayer by affirming that intuition, that uh, people encourage you in that, that course of action and that there's many good reasons to do it. Or he might show you that that actually would not be a wise thing to do. Or he might just not give you a clear answer. It might be at the end of the day, you've done all those things and there's no compelling case either way. Well, in that case, you should just feel free to do what you want to do. You have that kind of freedom. You're still praying that God would use your decision so for his own purposes, but God doesn't always give us unambiguous signs about these sorts of things. But we should still inquire of the Lord, ask for God's help. Second, attend to God's word. When David did receive a clear word from Samuel or a priest or from God, another way from prophet, he always obeyed what God said. Well, we should do the same. Uh, what, but we need to be careful. Again, your tradition of Christianity might have people who are called priests, elders, pastors, but they're not infallible. And the New Testament has a category for prophets, but even prophecies in the New Testament need to be weighed, that is, they need to be tested for truth, not just blindly uh, trusted and applied. Even if you think you've had a vision from God, you've been visited by an angel, you've had a, a, the voice of God speak to you, even then you need to test that for truth. How do we do that? The test of truth is to measure it against the revealed 
words of God in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the reliable and authoritative written record of the words that God wanted all of us to have. And it's not just, uh, it's not just for some of us, but for all of us. It tells us the stories and the truths, the principles and the values that God wants us to shape our lives by. Now, we need to read the Bible. That is the ultimate test of truth. But it's not an easy thing to read and interpret the Bible. Even as we've seen today, it's not that simple as just saying we can read a story from David's life, for example, and just apply it and just imitate David in what he does. But as you keep learning, you're sitting under the Bible in maybe public meetings, in small groups, in church, and so on, let me also encourage you to take whatever opportunities you can to invest in your own ability to read and interpret the Bible and to grow in that. Now, one of the best EU training courses that there is on offer uh, that we've done for many, many, many years is called Teaching the Bible, TTB. And uh, put up your hand if you have done that course or you're doing that course at the moment. It's fantastic. If you haven't had the chance to do it yet, or if you will have the chance to do it next year, let me really encourage you to do it. It's called Teaching the Bible, but most of it's not about teaching. It's about reading and understanding the Bible. And that's something that all of us can benefit from. Well, we're still talking about the fact that God's word doesn't fail. And one of the implications of that is that we ought to inquire of God to know what he wants us to do. We ought to attend to God's word. And thirdly, we don't do either of those things just alone as lone rangers. We, we want to do it together. And so therefore, thirdly, seek godly advice. And I won't labor the point, but God has given us a gift that sometimes we neglect. The gift is the person to the left of you and to the right of you, the person in front of you and the person behind you. These people are God's gift to you and you are God's gift to them. We can make wiser decisions together than we can individually. We can help each other to understand and remember what God says in the Bible, in his word. And therefore, we can be a loving safety net for one another. For when one of us is trying to make a decision, we're trying to seek God's help and wisdom, we're trying to work out what God's word is trying to say, it is possible for us on our own to make mistakes and where the risk is reduced when we do it together in community. So ask for advice, for help, for prayer, and take hold of the gift of God's people so that they can help you uh, live in a way that is aligned with God's word. So let's uh, zoom out again and recap where we're going. The big question we're trying to answer is where is God when we can't see him? And part of the answer is God might be just working in ways that we're blind to, that are unexpected to us, but God, he's just doing work without us. Another part of the answer is that God's word doesn't fail, and therefore we ought to just trust him and seek his, uh, seek his word when, um, uh, when, we, when we don't know what else to do. But at the end of the day, we also have to say, finally, that God's sovereignty is a mystery. For his own reasons, God sometimes looks hidden to us, and sometimes he's working in the very thing that seems to be hiding his presence through the mystery of his hiddenness. 
Now have a look at our, our Bible passage for today, chapter 27. And just a whole, so many weird things are in this chapter. David, he's hiding among the Philistines. He said to himself, well, Saul's going to capture me. The best thing I can do is to take myself out of the country and join the Philistines. That is weird. The Philistines, he was, he was, he's been killing them and uh, fighting against them. Uh, but now he's hiding amongst them. Uh, doesn't seem that David has been given a word from the Lord about this. He doesn't seem to inquire of God about that. What should we make of it? It's ambiguous. We don't really know. What is God doing here? Well, it works. Saul does stop looking for David. But um, now what? And now it kind of looks like Achish, the king of Gath, he's treating David like a hired mercenary or as a, you know, a, a, a tributary tribe. Because what happens is that David goes out raiding and he takes plunder and he brings it back to the king of this Philistine city. And uh, so what is going on there? If, if this was where the train was meant to stop, it feels like a really weird place to stop. Uh, or, or you could say it seems like the train's going backwards because David's now serving a, a foreign enemy king. Uh, but we should notice also that one of the things that you might not pick up on is that David's raiding the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. These are the enemies of Israel and people who are under God's judgment. But when he comes back to the king of Gath, he says, oh, I've been raiding the, you know, these different areas, the Negev of Judah and so on, which, which suggests that he's raiding his own people, the Israelites or the allies of the Israelites. Um, and so he wins the trust of this foreign king um, by deceiving him about where he's really gone raiding. And uh, he's, he's really acting as a double agent. The king thinks he's working for him, but actually he's still benefiting the, um, the nation of Israel at this point. And the whole thing is under this funny tension, because this is not where David's meant to be. This is not where he's meant to end up. And in the first few, chapter, uh, few verses of chapter 28, uh, the tension really comes to a climax for us because the king of Gath says to, to David, we are going to go fight against the Israelites and you're going to come fight with us. Well, is David going to have to join his army to the Philistine army and fight against his own people? Uh, well, we're left on a cliffhanger. Actually, we have to wait a whole chapter before we find out how that resolves. But just as we think that the train is going backwards, then the doors open and we've arrived at the next stop. Because uh, what happens is that everything works out just right for David. Because the, uh, as he comes over to the front lines of the, uh, of the Philistines, the other Philistine commanders don't trust him. And so he's ha he, he is sent back home. And so he, he's spared from having to fight against Saul and his own people. As, he, as it happens, as he's gone away, his, his own um, uh, family and the families of all his men have been kidnapped by the Amalekites. And as they come back, they've discovered the situation and they have the chance to rescue them. And so they rescue them and everything's okay on that side as well. And then as the Philistines fight against the Israelites, Saul and his family are killed. And that actually opens the way for David to come back into, the, uh, into his home country uh, and to claim his rightful place as king of the nation. So everything actually works out okay for him in the end. 
God works in mysterious ways. It kind of feels like we don't know what's happening. It feels very ambiguous. And you would be forgiven for asking, where is God in this chapter? What is God doing? And yet, God's clearly in control of the whole thing. This weekend, we celebrate probably what is the clearest example of the mystery of God's sovereignty. There couldn't be any more jarring experience for those people who were true followers of Jesus than the fact that he was betrayed, he was convicted on false charges, he was tortured, he was shamed and brutally executed during a Jewish festival. At the time, you couldn't have drawn any other conclusion than that God's purposes and plans, if they were for Jesus to be the Messiah, they'd failed. That if Jesus was God in the flesh, then God was dead. We should just bury him and take his stuff and move on. But, but, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't the failure of God's plans. It was the entire climax of God's plans. It wasn't the sign that Jesus had failed as Messiah. It was the very place that showed that Jesus is the Messiah. What looked like the abandonment of God and the hiddenness of God and the absence of God turned out to be the love of God, the presence of God, the public declaration that God had not given up on us. Now, I can be confident of that because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And if you have never taken the time to really investigate the historical evidence around the seemingly impossible miracle of Jesus coming back to life, I really encourage you to do that this weekend as we're thinking about it and talking about it over Easter. There is a surprisingly strong evidence-based case for Jesus's, the reality of Jesus's death and his empty tomb, and it's actually very hard to escape the conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead, just as all his disciples were claiming and proclaiming that he is the resurrection and the life. And that's good news for us when we're asking the question, where is God? When we're looking at the brutality of the world and we're asking, what is God doing? How can God allow this to happen? When we look at the messiness of our own lives and we're asking, what is God doing in all this? The comfort is that God may be hidden, but he doesn't fail. We might not see him, but he is at work. And our failure and our lack of understanding never foils his plans. It might just be that in those moments that we think are darkest, that he is doing the most powerful work. And that is why we can humbly persevere. Not because God needs us, he doesn't. But we pray for God's help, we attend to God's word, we support one another, and we trust God in the mystery. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyuneeu.org.